Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Young Frankenstein from 1974 with my wonderful and very special guest, Susanna Mars. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I'm your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today I have such a special guest. My friend Susanna Mars is here. Hi, Susanna. Hey, Sarah. You are so dear. I'm so happy to be here. It's so wonderful to see you. It's really good to see you too. This week we watched the film Young Frankenstein from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks. Susanna, what'd you think? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I can't even think anything until I acknowledge my dad's in the film. So, you know, it, I grew up on it and I just adore it. And watching it every time, I find more funny things. And I've got two kids, of course, who quote it. And it's a classic in every way. Funny. Gosh, the acting's out of this world. It's brilliant. I love it. It's so well done. It's such a good movie. It has everything that you could want. It's just so, it's so pitch perfect. So I'm excited that we're talking about it today. Yeah, me too. So the reason I chose this movie is one, it's going to come out around Halloween and it pays homage to all the great universal classics. So I thought, let's do this, obviously. <laughs> and then, I mean, it's a great film. And then your dad, Kenneth Mars is in it. So yeah. that's just extra special. Yeah. When I was a kid and he was making this film, I just loved hanging out on the set with him. And I had an opportunity to be at 20th Century when they were making this on the back lot. And I fell in love with the the uh, sound. Now I'm going to use the wrong term, I think. It, sound designer is what's coming to mind. But his name was Gino. In those days when I'd hang out on film sets, everybody was so kind and delightful. And, oh, Ken's daughter's here. Come sit by me. Come sit by me. Mel Brooks, hey, call me Uncle Mel. You know, just... Just such a camaraderie, such a warm, wonderful place to be with these creative artists who couldn't be more kind and funny and kind to a kid, right, who's just hanging out. And so, you know, I got to see Bill Tuttle and that Academy Award winning, I believe it won the Academy Award for makeup. Did it? Am I wrong? I think oh, I this? could be wrong. I'm, I'm not, not sure. actually sure. I, I saw that this was nominated for several things, but I didn't see that it won. Yeah, and it was nominated for sound. And in fact, I remember because my dad was in the Academy and I remember um, telling my dad, you've got to vote for Gino. And he said, well, of course, I'll vote for Gino. I 
I'm going to be honest. I did not realize that you were like on the set of this film. I so was. that's incredible. I was just like, you're my friend and <laughs> your dad's in this movie. Let's watch it. That had I had not put two and two together in that way. So that's incredibly special. But yeah. also just I feel like there are so many times you hear so many terrible stories about the way people behaved on movie sets and people from the past in general. And so to hear that people were kind and it was like a lovely set where good work was done, that's just really good to hear in general. So thanks for sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. I Maybe it's when kids are on the set, they on better behavior, I don't know, but I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, I think this particular group, just a stellar group of actors, warm, professional, all the cool things. That was always fun for me as a kid, hanging out on sets. And this one in particular, because Gino really took me under his wing, and he would send me on little errands, kind of little evil errands, really. He'd say, go over to the boom operator and take his magazines out of the his little magazine holder and then tear them up or maybe set one on fire. So that, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> he had you doing hijinks for him on set. It wasn't me. It was the kid. Exactly. This kid, Ken Mars's kid. She's a she's a devil. I don't know if this is a rude question or not, but how old were you on that set? Um, let's see. It was released in 74, right? And I think they made it in 73. So I think I was 10. That's the best age to have been on this set. It was pretty good, I'm not gonna lie. And you know, 20th century is where they filmed Hello Dolly and when you went into, and I don't think this set is there anymore, when you went into the gate to enter the studio, you'd go into the Hello Dolly, the whole L train and all these facades. And I mean, it was just magical, just movie history everywhere you look. Hello, Dolly, the Technicolor extravaganza. Oh my God, wow, okay, this is this is incredible information. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I will give a plot synopsis of the film and then I just wanna hear more about everything. That's way more interesting than probably anything I'm going to add to it because you were there and you lived it. I'm totally stoked to hear the plot synopsis because, okay, so I just watched the movie again and I just, I had forgotten how hilarious. Go for it, Sarah. So Mel Brooks is just a master of putting comedy into genre. So he can take a genre and take whatever he needs to out of that genre to make it fit the genre and be funny at the same time. And so this is like one of the really subtle instances of a film incredibly fitting the genre that it came from, but also being really, really witty and funny. Okay, so Young Frankenstein, the plot. It's about this, well, first, very first, we get like awesome 1930s credits and this is a black and white film. So this film is made in the 70s, that's not a normal thing. That's what makes it extra special. So we've got the castle on the hill, lightning, thunder, rain, 1930s opening credit sequence. Great music. John Morris did the score and it's beautiful. Yeah, and you know, I noticed Jonathan Tunick did the orchestrations or the, or, I guess orchestrations, and Jonathan Tunick was one of Sondheim's arrangers. Never noticed that. I did that with um, Adolph Green last week when we watched My Favorite Year. I was like, Adolph Green of Compton and Green is in this movie? Wait, what, oh. what, what? Yes. Isn't that great? Okay, so this movie, Young Frankenstein. I explained the early, the first sequence, but then we meet Victor Frankenstein, who it's pronounced Frankenstein. Right. Frankenstein. He is not a Frankenstein. Yes, 
He is aware that his great grandfather was the Frankenstein that created a monster, but he is not that guy. He doesn't believe in that science. Please don't confuse the two. So he's teaching this medical student class. And one of the medical students who very clearly wants a terrible grade in this course keeps pestering him about his great grandfather. And Gene Wilder loses it and is like, leave me alone. I am not my grandfather. So he's very disconnected from that life. He finds out that he has just inherited his great grandfather's estate in Transylvania. So he he gets on the train, says goodbye to his fiance, Madeline Kahn. Best scene ever. I'm sorry. I can't stop. Okay, so we meet Madeline Kahn, his fiance, and we can tell the relationship's not great. He wants to be like a little more physical, even just like holding her. And she's like, no, my hair, no, my fur. It's great. So uh, he takes several trains to get to Transylvania. And um, when he does, he meets Igor. Igor, but he goes, if you're Frankenstein, I'm Igor, which my friend Nick actually says is the correct way to say it anyway. So there you go. <laughs> Love it. Um, so he meets Igor, who is exactly like the Igor slash Igor of your dreams in Frankenstein. He's played by Marty Feldman. He's got a hunchback that keeps switching sides because it's hilarious. Um, and he's going to be some of the very witty, very self-aware comic relief in this piece. We also meet Inga, who is played by Terry Garr, who is also a fantastic comedic actress. She's so great. Mm -hmm. And uh, and she's going to be his assistant and she's gorgeous. <laughs> and so that's he's got his Frankenstein set up. Uh, he goes to his castle. He is looking for his grandfather's laboratory and library and he can't find it. And oh, by the way, there's a picture of his great grandfather that looks just like him. So we know the future. Um, <laughs> we also meet Cloris Leachman as Frau Blucher. And every time they say her name, the horses go nuts. And they do that. They keep this gag going throughout the piece. And it's a really great gag. And I love it. Me too. She's a little older. And she kind of makes a pass at Frankenstein. And he's like, nah. In the middle of the night, he hears music playing. And he can't figure out where it's coming from. Eventually, he follows the music along with Inga and Igor, Igor, and they find his great-grandfather's laboratory, and he finds a book called How I Did It, and he figures out that it is possible to recreate life, and he wants to try it, but he wants to do it a little bit differently so that it's not so chaotic. Um, so that's what they do. They follow this Frankenstein story. They find the body of a criminal who's just been hanged, and uh, when Igor goes to get him a brain... He breaks the good brain and he has to get the abnormal brain. So he brings back an abnormal brain and not the brain of a scientist and a saint. One of my favorites, Abby Normal. Come on, it's the best. Which brain did you get? Abby something. Abby what? Abby Normal. So yes, he, we have the wrong brain. It gets put into this creature. The science experiment works. The creature does come to life. Uh, meanwhile, the villagers in town are concerned that a new Frankenstein is here. They haven't met him. They're worried. Uh, so an inspector, <laughs> played by Kenneth Mars. The cutest inspector ever. So cute with his gadgety arms and his very strong German accent. I actually thought, I was like, it's almost like German-Swedish. It's so, it's like beautiful. I want to hear how he like came up with that. Don't forget the monocle on his eye patch. 
So uh, he decides to figure out if this guy is legit or not. He goes, he's a little concerned, but nothing has happened yet. The creature is brought to life. Gene Wilder teaches it love. And together they put on a show for the people and they do my favorite moment, which is when they sing putting on the Ritz together. It's absolutely fantastic. We're probably going to break it down too. Unfortunately, the monster doesn't love flashes of light and one of the lights on the stage breaks and there's a flash of light and he gets scared and these really dumbass townspeople start throwing things at the monster because they're complete morons who I think just want to be attacked. And um, so the monster goes into the audience and hurts no one, but they still put the monster in jail. The monster gets out of jail. And after he gets out of jail, I forget, is this the part where he sees the little girl and the blind man and they have the two references to the other Frankenstein films? This is it. So he escapes and there's the famous scene from um, the original Frankenstein with the child. He sees the little girl with the daisies and we're all worried at home. We're like, oh no, how is this going to go? Is he going to hurt that kid? He does not hurt the kid. Yay, this is a comedy. It's a great moment. Instead, he goes on a seesaw with her and she just flies into her room and it's happy. And then um, the blind man scene is great, too, with Gene Hackman. What a great cameo. That's from Bride of Frankenstein. Although in the books, it's a whole other thing. We can talk about that, too. Um, So anyway, eventually Frankenstein ends up back where he's supposed to be. I forget if when Madeline Kahn comes back. At some point, Gene Wilder and... um, Inga get together uh, romantically. She comes back right after that. So Madeline Kahn shows up. The monster's still out there in the world. He's escaped and he sees Madeline Kahn through a window and and she faints and gets gray in her hair from being scared. And then he picks her up and carries her away and they have really great sex. And she... I'm assuming later we're going to talk about where some of these things are... Yeah, the consent and the like, woman having sex with her boss. There's a lot of issues where you're like, I don't know about... I don't know if that holds up. I don't know about that. But eventually, uh, Frankenstein realizes that if he puts some of his brain... Or not his brain, but his like life force. I don't totally understand it. Into the monster, the monster will be intelligent and okay and will not harm people. So he transfers some of his life force into this monster, but they end it seven seconds too early because the villagers have attacked his home. And so the monster wakes up and is like, don't harm this man. I am sane and normal and in charge of my brain now. And the inspector's like, okay, this is a different story. You're right. You're fine. And then um, Gene Wilder wakes up. Well, we don't see him wake up, but we see him get married to Terry Garr. And we're like, oh, he's fine. Hmm, what's going on here? And then we see the monster in a very adorable marriage to Madeline Kahn. (laughs) And um, he's a very rational guy. And she's got the Bride of Frankenstein hair, you know, on top of her head like Marge Simpson with the streaks. And then um, at the end of the movie, we find out that uh, what Gene Wilder got from Frankenstein in this transfer was an incredible sex drive. And he becomes very good at having sex. And we're like, oh, this is fun. The Schwanstücke. The Schwanstücke. One of my favorite, uh, well, because my kids adore this and they quote this uh, very (laughs) often, which is when Madeline Kahn meets Terry Garr for the first time. And she says, what exactly is it that you do do? And then she has a line later that just tickles me about, is it the poopy undies or the doo-doo undies or something like that? Ooh, I don't know. It's when she's living with him and she's like, I put two new hampers in the bathroom. Didn't you see them? Oh, that's a riot. We got to find it's that so one. It's so darn cute. I don't know if I wrote it down, 
but I think it's an absolutely adorable quote. There's so many good ones. One of the moments you had talked about breaking down was the train scene. That totally fits into one of my topics, which is like, what are the tropes of both like the universal horror stories and Frankenstein movies that are in this, but also like, what are the tropes of like classic movies of the time that are in this? Because to me, that train scene is such an homage to like, to oh. brief encounter and just all these beautiful goodbye on train mm. moments that are romantic and glamorous. But this one, they show the more like real aspect of it all. There's right. so much fog. And when he tries to hold her and she's like, no, nope, my lipstick, no, nope, my jacket, no, nope, my hair, hair. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> my nails. But so good. when he tries to hold her from behind and the monkey fur is in his face, you're seeing all the practical aspects that they don't show in the movies. The movies make it so glamorous. And these people are trying to be glamorous, but they're being real. They're, you know, they're showing the real side of it. William Tuttle was one of the most famous makeup artists of the day. And that glamour makeup and that oh. incredible, I mean, not only uh, Peter Boyle with the monster, but the glamour makeup, um, I mean, Madeline Kahn and, and same with um, Frau Blucher, yeah, Gene Wilder. I mean, it was just, the makeup was just perfection and the costuming. I was thinking that throughout with Gene Wilder because mm-hmm. he's not someone you necessarily think of as like a romantic lead, mm-hmm. but they made him look like Robert Donat. Like he looks so handsome and yeah. he's got eyelashes for days and his mm-hmm. hair is just right and his suits are just right. Mm-hmm. You know, he fits that type so well in this and you wouldn't yeah. expect that. Yeah. I have a funny story, actually. So after Young Frankenstein, my dad did a, another wonderful movie called What's Up, Doc, which you probably oh, know because you're a classic movie person. And, right. And so, there, so of course, Madeline Kahn is in that movie. And there's this actor, Liam Dunn, who plays Barbara Streisand's dad. Uh, he's the judge. You remember at the end when Liam, the judge, comes in, he says, who's responsible for all of this? Uh And then Barbara Streisand raises the towel from her head or the blankie, and she says, hi, Daddy. And then the whole, you know, his judge's desk falls apart. So Liam Dunn, same actor, plays the patient in the opening scene when Gene Wilder is showing what happens when you prevent the patient from feeling pain. (gasps) Oh! The really very, very older man with the tiny, skinny legs. Skinniest legs ever, yes. He is so hilarious. He's, I mean, he's hilarious in What's Up, Doc. And I, I, I remember my dad telling me that he came, I think, to acting very late in life. And I can't remember what he did previously. But Liam Dunn was just, my dad adored him. And oh my gosh, that scene is so darn funny. It's in a the, great scene. Isn't it great? In both of them. In, in this one, it's great yeah. too. Yeah. This great, like... It's a comic kind of button in the beginning because it shows yeah. so much. It leads the plot. It helps us advance. But it's it's also really like slapsticky. It's slapsticky mm-hmm. in a witty moment. It's great. Right. And Mel Brooks is, you know, what I would say is slapstick. Never plays like slapstick because it all is so much embedded in a reality. And even when Gene Wilder puts the scalpel into his leg, you know, it just play. It plays real it's just fantastic because he has so much self-awareness he has so much awareness in what he does that it just can't help but translate yeah and he was a was such an incredible actor a serious dramatic actor so it makes sense that he would you know he just takes all those characters to a deep organic level where the comedy comes right out of the real human so brilliant 
he felt like he was an actor who was a comedian versus mm -hmm. just I'm a comedian. Mm -hmm. Wait, so this means you met Gene Wilder too. You know, I don't remember him very well. Um, I really remember hanging out more with the tech crew, going to lunch once with uh, Cloris Leachman oh and <laughs> and her mole fell into her salad and she ate it. <gasps> no, mm -hmm. that's a great story. I'm shocked she didn't take it off. I mean, that's why, why would you, I guess? I don't know. And I think I remember, and it was funny when I was watching, I thought, oh, I want to look for that, but I forgot to, that her mole moved around too, kind of like the hump. Oh. But I'm not sure. I wasn't looking for that, but mm -hmm. I should have been. Me She's too. fantastic in this too. I think oh my gosh. all of the women in this yeah. are so funny. Yes. And it kills me because like, so, you know, John Belushi, there are people that have said women are not funny. Right. I mean, this came out before John Belushi was a thing. Oh, and yeah. these women are pitch perfect in every single part. They oh. bring it. They are wonderful. So yeah, when, when men say things like that, I'm just like, I'm sorry. No, you're no. incredibly wrong. Here is some proof. Bye-bye. <laughs> that's just got to be a moment that's a mistake. Just can't yeah. be. <laughs> Ugh. Well, then I guess I'll ask first. This was at the bottom of the list, but we're mm -hmm. doing it now. Do you have any mm -hmm. other fun moments or quotes that you want to share before we continue and we can come back around to it? The sweet mystery of life, of course. Madeline Kahn's most brilliant singer. And it's just so dang funny. Uh, what up? My dad, you know, on occasion, my dad would end up in a parade or something and people would be on the side of the street yelling, <laughs> footsteps, footsteps, footsteps. <laughs> So that's really a great one. Oh, and you had mentioned the monocle over the eye patch. That costuming is great. The monocle, the eye patch, the arm that I wanted to know how they were doing that. And I was like, I have to ask Susanna how they did the mechanical arm. As I remember, that was my dad's arm underneath the jacket. And he had the wooden arm. You know, I'm, I'm not going to remember exactly how that was. I do remember that... When he put his finger in the fire, they had some protection for his finger, but it still burned him. But I can't remember <gasps> the whole story. Um, the monocle on the eye patch. I guess when my when Mel called my dad to be in the film, he said, "Okay, I'm making a film called Young Frankenstein. I want you to play the inspector. Um, let me tell you, do you think it's too much if there's a monocle on an eye patch?" And my dad said, no. And Mel said, you're hired. And it's true. It's just the right amount. It's not too much. No, it's so funny. In fact, I, I used to do a podcast. Um, it ended right, well, right as COVID came because it was related to a publishing company um, that did programs, um, Artslandia, which is a wonderful company. And I, one of my last interviews, Mel agreed that I could interview him. What a man, what a gem, what a person who has such joy and love for the work. It was a brilliant, wonderful opportunity. And he even sang a little song and, you know, he's a great composer and just a man with so many talents and such a good heart. Oh, my God. I love that story. Mm -hmm. um, well, actually, he's on my list, too, just talking about Mel Brooks and his background. So I can share a little bit with the folks at home. That'd be cool. About Mel Brooks. So... Mel Brooks, uh, you may know him <laughs> from several things. He got his start in Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows as a the writer. Best. 
we actually just did my favorite year on the podcast and we talk about him a lot. Um, it was really hard. I felt bad because a lot of the episode is just me being like, wow, almost this whole movie doesn't hold up because it's so incredibly, um, sexist that it Mm. physically hurts. So Mm. (laughs) it was mainly just me having a hard time. Mm -hmm. Um, but he also is known for the 2000 year old man sketch that he does with Carl Reiner. Uh, he got his TV career going with get smart as well later on in the sixties. Uh, his film work starts with the producers, which your dad was also in the fantastic mm-hmm. producers an independent mm-hmm. film they just made um and you might also know him from blazing saddles from making young frankenstein silent movie high anxiety history of the world part one robin hood men in tights Spaceballs, and the musical the producers on broadway and the musical young frankenstein on broadway um and he he's an egot winner and a kennedy center honors winner award awardee award getter oh, i don't know awardee yeah awardee i like that so his background he's born in brooklyn to a jewish family who were immigrants um his dad died when he was two of kidney disease and his dad was only 34 so he said that deeply affected him and how he grew up and then at nine he saw a play called anything goes with ethel merman <laughs> and he said that was it for him he knew right then he was going to go into show business no garment district for him it was show business Uh, He went into the army in 1944, and he actually fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, After the war, he got back. He worked in the Catskills in the Borscht Belt. He had learned how to play the drums at 14 as like a job. And so he did that in the Catskills and played the piano. And then he started doing stand-up. And the stand-up led him to theater and working with Sid Caesar. And that led to writing on your show of shows, so, yeah, I mentioned after your show of shows, then it's the 2,000-year-old man. Then he works on Get Smart with Buck Henry um, and eventually independently produces the producers, which no studio wanted to touch because of the subject matter. But then it was this huge underground hit. Um, it's a cult classic. And he won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for writing the producers. Mm-hmm. Um, and he finds this this thing that he's great at, which is taking genres and turning them into comedies. And he does that with the Western genre and makes Blazing Saddles, which is completely trailblazing and such like a touchstone of contemporary comedy. And that's the same year as this. And Gene Wilder on the set of Blazing Saddles started talking to Mel Brooks about the impetus for Young Frankenstein. So uh, this was Mel Brooks quote about uh, Young Frankenstein's inception. He said, I was in the middle of shooting the last few weeks of Blazing Saddles somewhere in the Antelope Valley, and Gene Wilder and I were having a cup of coffee, and he said, I have this idea that there could be another Frankenstein. I said, not another. We've had son of, the cousin of, the brother-in-law of. We don't need another Frankenstein. His idea was very simple. What if the grandson of Dr. Frankenstein wanted nothing to do with the family whatsoever? He was ashamed of those wackos. I said, that's funny. That's the inception of uh, The Young Frankenstein. Um, I do want to also mention that Mel Brooks is a great producer as well. So Mm -hmm. he doesn't just direct and write these awesome comedies. He also uh, produced The Elephant Man, Francis, Mm -hmm. about Francis Farmer, which is Mm -hmm. a heartbreaking film. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Fly with Jeff Goldblum and uh, My Favorite Year and 84 Charing Cross Road, which stars his wife and Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And it's just this little gem of a movie Beautiful. Uh, based on a stage play. It's, it's completely darling. Mm-hmm. And then I want to mention that he, he was married to this woman, Florence, uh, Florence Baum from the 50s to the 60s, but the love of his life was Anne Bancroft, who he was married to from 1964 until she passed in 2005. And they were like the perfect couple 
they in were. my opinion. So that's Mel Brooks. That's the inception of Young Frankenstein as an idea. Um, I also read that they would meet for tea. They'd go to some sort of club and sit down for tea and have digestive biscuits and talk about the ideas they wanted for Young Frankenstein. So they would mm. feel very British. Oh, I love that. I didn't know that. I'd never heard that. That's great. Yeah. So that's Mel Brooks in a nutshell. Your experience of Mel Brooks just sounds like he's an incredibly <sighs> lovely man with a lot of passion. Yes. And so many talents. Um, in 2015, my daughter was uh, studying abroad in London and it turned out that Mel was doing his one-man show in London. And so um, one of my dear friends now works for Mel, and we checked in with each other. And I said, hey, we'd really love to see the show. Because, you know, my daughters, although they've seen all my dad's movies, I don't think they could really understand the phenomenon that Mel Brooks and his films are and were, you know, in the filmmaking, the history of filmmaking and comedy, for sure. So uh, we ended up getting tickets and they were so kind. They gave us great seats. And then we got to go backstage for my kids to sit with me and see. First of all, Mel's show was incredible. He had an accompanist. He sang. He's talked, told stories. I mean, and this is recent. This is five years ago. Uh, right? Well, six years ago now. And, you know, he. this is a long, big sh one person show. And it is, he is absolutely on point, funny, delightful, uh, musical. And it's just, it's him and the pianist. That's it. And he told stories about my dad. And for my girls to hear that, to hear that creative process. And my dad passed in 2011, which was a heartbreak. And in fact, after my dad passed away, Mel did a special screening of Young Frankenstein in LA as a memorial. And just for my kids to kind of get a sense in a sold out house of the love and admiration that so many people have for Mel Brooks, it was just, it, I'll never, never forget it. And then to go, of course, backstage and talk to him and the girls meet him. And, you know, he's just a dear heart. And his talent is immense. Um, gosh, his his composing and I just love his sense of play and creativity. And the fact that he still has it. Like even oh. during COVID, at the beginning of COVID, he made that video with his son. Yes. That was so hilarious. Yeah. And yeah. he's in his 90s still yes. doing things like this. Carl Reiner passing away, I think, was a real, I mean, I think they saw each other. In fact, I we talked about it. They talked every day. And I just know from living with a person similarly creative, you need somebody to bounce things off of. You need someone to talk to. I would imagine, and I don't know because I don't know Max personally, but I would imagine that he and his dad have a lot of fun talking about such things. I mean, Mel Brooks' body of work is immense and crosses all the genres. I mean, EGOT, what, how many people have the EGOT? It's like not a default EGOT. It's like mm -mm. all earned all yes. creatively gained. Yeah, and, and then also, not only has he made uh, great comedies, but he's made so many serious movies. Mm -hmm. He's a really a serious human with a deep, deep heart. This is fantastic to hear. For me, one of the great joys of like what I was learning today was I was learning about your dad today. So mm. like, because we're doing this, I mm -hmm. got to learn about your dad and Aww. he sounds just like such a lovely man. 
Um, oh, and so I could not believe his IMDb page of all <laughs> of the work he has done yeah. because he has had such a career. Like, yeah. that's incredible. For people at yeah. home, let me tell you what her dad has done. Hold on, <laughs> let me go to that page. Such a page. It was, like, hitting me. I just went, oh, my goodness. I had <laughs> no idea. But, mm. like, he's also a really good man and very humble, too. Like, yes. his his pages online, it's just kind things. And he was married mm. to his wife. And he has two wonderful kids. He, they were not married very long. He was a wonderful man. My, my mom was an amazing woman. They, that's actually a really funny story. You'll probably enjoy it. My parents met on the national tour of The Sound of Music. Really? Who were they playing? My mom played a nun and understudied Maria, and my dad played a Nazi and understudied Max. It, it's just an old-time romance movie. You know, when you think about they were on the national tour on the train, and they I think they got married in Detroit. Hey, and, I'm from you know, Detroit. Hey. Yeah, I, it, it's an awesome story, I think. Showmance. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Your dad, uh, his filmography is incredible. Um, people at home, you might know him from The Producers. He played uh, the Nazi writer, so it's very funny that he was the Nazi inside of music. Um, mm -hmm. It's Franz Liebkind. Um, he was in Young Frankenstein as the inspector. He's in What's Up, Doc. He's in Radio Days. He was in a movie that I liked in the 80s called For Keeps. It's that yeah. Molly Ringwald movie. It's yep. so sweet. Yep. He was in Fletch. He was mm. in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So he worked with my idol, Paul Newman. My God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was incredible. Mm -hmm. um, and then, okay. So everybody at home, he was Triton in The Little Mermaid. Your yep. dad is the voice of our childhood. My That's right. God. That's right. That's incredible. I'm Ariel's sister. But which one? But yeah. And just on a personal note, he was also, I noticed, in Animaniacs and played Beethoven on Animaniacs. So I knew exactly what episode that was. Mm. And then he's on Murder, She Wrote, which I I love also. So for me, oh, golly. Like, your dad, what if? And I, he's a very um, prolific voice actor. He's done so many voice roles. And you are a prolific voice actor. So there's something there. Yep. He, I, it rubbed off, I think. He was Grandpa Dinosaur in... A Land Before Time. Land Before Time. And, you know, my dad was just an old school brass tacks actor. He did everything he worked with. He had such a love of the business. He played Betty Davis's son in a pilot. <sighs> and when he first met her, he lit the two cigarettes and handed her one, you know. And he was such a knowledgeable movie fan, uh, worked with Jimmy Stewart, I'm all, some of the greats of all time. He, I was a huge Lucille Ball fan, and he was working on the Universal lot, and Lucille Ball was filming something, and he found out where she was and got permission, and he said, I've got a surprise for you. And we walked onto the soundstage, and there she was, and introduced me, and, you know, big moments. That is so special. Oh, yeah. my God. Susanna, I had no idea about any of this. But here's the thing. <laughs> you, are, you are so humble, and you're so kind. So oh. you're not, like, the type of person that's going to be like, guess what? This <laughs> is what happened to me, and this is why I'm better than everybody. No. <laughs> so it's like, this has been fascinating to find out. And... <laughs> I'm so honored that you're sharing this with me. Thank you. Aww. This is lovely. Like, oh. oh, my God. It's it's really fun to, to share the stories. I think there might have been a time in my life where it felt weird to share because it feels, you know, I think that the movie business is our royalty. And, you know, I realize 
my dad was, you know, a journeyman really. And I loved going to work with him and he was very serious about his work. He was also a writer. He produced things. He loved music. Um, he was, in fact, when you said that the the show that Mel had seen was uh, Ethel Merman and Anything Goes, my dad was in the version with Hal Linden of Anything Goes on on Broadway. And in fact, you know, my dad met Cole Porter right before wow. he died. And, uh, you know, just my dad was a a journeyman. That's just, I can't think of a better word, really. He he got auditions. He went to auditions. He did jobs. I It's remarkable. I wish he were still alive so I could just tell him how amazing I thought he was in his dedication to the craft uh, and how, what a hard job it is, what hard work it is and getting work and um, you know, maintaining your sanity through all the rejections and so on. You know, there's weird stories. In fact, that's right. This was a story that really blew my socks. If anyone was ever mean to my dad, it was really tough for me to watch them after that, you know. And after they made What's Up Doc, in which I thought my dad was like so handsome and adorable, there was going to be, oh golly, what movie was it? I can't remember. There was a movie he was auditioning for where he would play the lead or the male romantic interest with Barbara Streisand. And it got back to him that she said he wasn't attractive enough. <gasps> no, Barbara, no. I hope it's wrong because I love Barbara. I love Barbara. I hope it's wrong too. But somehow someone, an agent or someone said, you're not attractive enough. And maybe it wasn't her, maybe it was someone else. But I'll tell you, I mean, I was a kid when I, you know, I thought, Boo. But now that you mention this, mm -hmm. Barbara does have this weird thing of always mm -hmm. wanting to be with like the most handsome leading men. And I actually think it's probably because inside she had her own issues. So yes. she's always got to be with like Robert Redford and like Ryan O'Neal. Chris Christopherson. Like Chris Christopherson. Great example. Mm -hmm. Nick Nolte when he was a very handsome. Right. Like she's. <laughs> So I think that's her. I think that she she has a thing where it's like you have to be a model to be right. opposite me, but that's missing out on like people that are still handsome, by the way, but right. like are very good actors as well. You know, like that <laughs> yes. shuts the door. You can't have Brad Pitt every time. Yeah. Hello. That's just not fair. Come on. Oh, Barbara. Yeah. That's a bummer. You're right. Yeah, it was. And you just never want anyone to hurt your parents' feelings, you know? I totally do know. And the, oh, and your dad went to Northwestern. He's just like a Chicago guy. And I, yep. I love that. Grew up in Chicago. Yeah. Fellow Midwesterner. Um, I did a, a musical theater summer camp there. I taught oh. the Light Opera Works on Northwestern's campus. And it was so much fun. Yeah, he, he was a Northwesterner through and through. And his, one of his best friends from college is a wonderful artist in New York named Mel Pekarski. And uh, when Northwestern ended up at the Rose Bowl and they all went to the game and had a blast. <laughs> Is it sad that I'm like, I've only been to the Northwestern games that they played at Michigan and I went to one where Michigan played them. And I, I don't remember anything about it other than I was there and there was purple. And that's what yes, I remember. Yes, purple. That's right. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I remember. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm glad we got to like touch base about your dad like this mm. is so cool i always like to tell the background of people because that's what i want to look up and know mm -hmm. and then you also want to know if they're good people or not so it's always great when they're good people like when you find out that they were rotten you're like no i don't think
think there's anyone on this movie that was rotten. We got no Errol Flynn's in sight. No, and my dad adored Marty Feldman. In fact, sadly, my dad was on the set when Marty Feldman passed away with the pythons, oh, Yellowbeard. No because mm -hmm. he he passed away quite young it was like when he was 43 he or so they were all in mexico making a movie wow and by the way marty feldman is fantastic in this i actually think he's my favorite of the characters because that character that side character that gets all the great like witty asides break the fourth wall to the camera character it's so perfect it's the cherry on top have you watched the outtakes no are there oh. outtakes oh my lord google outtakes you'll go nuts the scene where Madeline Kahn returns to the castle and Marty Feldman, uh, you know, sa says, you know, how you doing? You know, and the outtakes are so hilarious. You will laugh your head off. They're just, they're all crying. In fact, and there's an outtake also, same when Cloris Leachman says to Gene Wilder, oh, Gene, now come on, you've got to stop laughing. You know, because <laughs> they just crack each other up. That's the whole thing. I remember that on set, actually, that they just, it was, like a machine of hilarious jokes, you know, where they just keep trying stuff out on each other. And I mean, and everyone was cracking up. And Mel told me a really funny story about dad during the producers that, you know, it really got to the point where he really had to tell everyone, you need to put a sock in your mouth. You cannot laugh during this scene anymore because the crew was laughing so hard. I mean, it makes so much sense because the way these movies end up coming out, you had mentioned this, they are serious in what they're doing. And so I'm gonna Google these outtakes. Everyone at home, you need to do this as well. But they, they do it so well that you can't, you can't imagine them falling to pieces because they all are so in charge of their roles. They're in command. Mm -hmm. Actually, that was one of my notes when your dad walked in for the first time in this film as the inspector. I was like, he is in command of that room. He walks in with authority and then lights his finger on fire. <laughs> I was like, this is an entrance, my God. Yeah. But yeah, they all take it so seriously. You can't imagine them yeah. like breaking and even improvising. It's got to be brilliant improvisation to be at this level of intelligence with what they're making fun of and commenting on. Mm -hmm. Damn. So speaking of brilliant people, we're going to talk about Gene Wilder now. Oh, so um, great. So great. You had mentioned this earlier. He has a theater acting background. Mm -hmm. um, so people at home, obviously, you know him from Willy Wonka. <laughs> he is Willy Wonka. Mm -hmm. He was in Blazing Saddles and Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor. He did a lot of movies with Richard Pryor. He was in a movie that my mom loves and she showed me and my brother a few years ago called Quaxer Fortune Has a Cousin in the Bronx. Oh, I don't know that. It's on YouTube for free. You could watch it. But huh. it's this just completely sweet, disarming, adorable film about a man who shovels shit for a living. Like, that's Gene Wilder. He um, shovels horses poop <laughs> and sells it to people for fertilizer, mainly the women of the town who mm -hmm. he, like, has adorable little kind of flirtations with. And uh, and then this this rich girl who's studying at the nearby college kind of takes a shine to him and it's about their relationship. But it's it's just unexpected. It's mm -hmm. not a perfect film by any means, mm -hmm. but it's really just adorable and oh. a little a little sad. But oh. then the end is lovely and you're like, mm -hmm. oh, OK, this life affirming film, things are going to work out OK, even when the bad stuff happens it's because oh also because his career is going away because of cars there are going to be no more horses so he has no more poop to scoop oh. and sell therefore oh 
He's going to lose his livelihood. Did he write it? I don't think he wrote it, but I think he fought for it. It was early in his career. It was like 1970. And it was, I read something about how he found the script and was like, oh, I have to do this film. I, wow. I have to do this. So Aww. yeah. And it's, it's lovely. Check it out. So Gene Wilder, uh, he was born in 1933. He was older than my dad. I didn't realize that. I wrote your dad was 1935. I wrote it down over here. Yeah, and that funny. I always thought that Gene was younger than Dad. Well, Gene also has this very young, boyish feel about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's mm -hmm. very boyish. That's the great mm -hmm. word to use. Mm -hmm. So he, I think he was raised in Hollywood, but something unfortunate that I read that had happened to him was his mother had sent him to a military institute um, when he was about 14, and he was bullied and sexually assaulted at oh. that institute, and that kind of deeply affected oh. his life. Um, so he got, and it was mainly because he was Jewish that he was, oh my kind of, gosh, that this happened to him. So he ended up getting out of there and he got really into acting. He went to the University of Iowa, got mm. a degree, and then moved to England and went to, he trained at the Bristol Old Vic, which I got to study abroad in London. Mm. Um, I went to Lambda, but that was one of the places that you go to see really excellent theater. So we would go mm -hmm. to the Bristol Old Vic all the time and see the mm. shows there. I saw um, Rosamund Pike in Gaslight there. Like, oh, I love yeah. Rosamund Pike. <laughs> she was oh my great. gosh. So yeah, there's just, there's really great stuff there. But he ended up learning fencing while he was in England. Mm. And he won. He became the all-school fencing champion after only fencing for six months. That's so crazy. He's an accomplished fencer. Triple threat. Quadruple, I guess. Sing, dance, play instruments, fence. So then he eventually comes back to the U.S., wants to study Stanislavski, works with Uta Hagen for three mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. uh, through, um, oh, what's his name? He just passed. Charles Grodin, through Charles Grodin. Oh, I love Charles I Grodin. Charles Grodin's wonderful. Yeah. Um, through him, he ends up working with the actor studio and mm. learning Strasbourg. So he's this deeply trained actor. So smart. Very serious. And he ends up doing, like, one of his first early, early works on film is Bonnie and Clyde. But a lot of his early theater... He was in Twelfth Night, and he ended up being um, the the stage combat expert on really? some of his shows that he was on because of his fencing background. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. But he really does come up through the theater. The way he meets Mel Brooks is he is, I think in 1963, he did a production of Mother Courage and Her Children with Anne Bancroft. That's right. She was dating Mel Brooks, and that's how they met, and like this incredible partnership was formed. And I do want to mention... Uh, Gene Wilder was married several times, but my favorite marriage of his was with Gilda Radner, the great mm. comedian. She's brilliant. Mm. And um, she tragically passed away of ovarian cancer. Um, I knew that they were they were trying to have kids and she kept having miscarriages and they found out it was because of cancer. But he also does a lot of philanthropy and like awareness for ovarian cancer as part of her legacy. He gets very involved in that. He marries this woman. I think it's Susan Boyer, maybe. But they were married until he passed. So it's like he found love again. I think it might have been an interview with Jean. I can't remember now, but it was beautiful, their their story. It wasn't perfect by any stretch, but they loved each other so much. You could you could tell. It was one of those things where you could just tell. So yeah, that I just wanted to call that out because it was it was beautiful. And it was part of his life. So that's Gene Wilder. That's a little taste of him. We talked about some of the universal monster moments mm -hmm. um, or we were getting into tropes of Frankenstein. Mm. Um, this movie really pays homage to the universal films. I'm not going to lie. It's been a minute since I saw Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, probably about 
five years or so. Did you see in your research that that set was many parts of it were original? I did. They really had the 1931, like the lights, the electric big switches and yeah. Yes, with the whatever those were, they looked like giant lava lamps. Yeah. All of that was yeah. from the original Frankenstein set and it's incredible. And now I'm wondering, their 20th Century Fox, how did they get that stuff from Universal? That is another story. And I believe it had to do with the owner or the, the set designer of the original. I was also reading today that Mel Brooks considers this film to be his finest though maybe not his funniest, work as a writer and director. I mean, I, I would agree. And the fact that it was going to be black and white, people did not love that. But I love it. It's not just that it's black and white, because anybody can do a black and white film. It's that it's black and white, and it looks like it could be from the 30s. The yeah. style of it, the way they shot it. The, like the, I'm not sure if it's German expressionism or not, but they were doing it in the monster movies in the 30s where they get that low shot from the ground so everything looks yes. kind of distorted and higher up. You get all these yes. beautiful shots. And, oh, so gorgeous. Okay, I wrote the music, the look, the cinematography. Um, yeah. So Gerald Hirschfeld was the DP, and it just oh. looks like a 1930s film. Oh, this is funny. I'm just like looking. I was trying to find out about the set. Hans Dillbrook, the brain was a real person. Oh, who was he? Was he really a scientist and a saint? It says, as Frederick readies his monster, he sends Igor to fetch a very special brain, which rests in a jar labeled Hans Delbruck, scientist and saint. The actual Hans Delbruck was an accomplished military historian whose son, Max, won a Nobel Prize for his work with the viruses. That's great. I don't know how we got the set. We're going to have to really find that. That wonderful man whose name we'll put in later. Yes. Who did the set. Yes. <laughs> he did a great job. We got the 1931 pieces from the original set. That goes back with the tropes. Beautiful. The Frankenstein tropes. I love that they put the zipper in the neck instead of the stitching. What a great way to update that. It's so smart. The castle, Ugh. the lightning, the jokes with the fog and having so much fog. Oh, the costuming. Terry Gar, when they're, they're going to look where the violins coming from, close up your robe. And she had that beautiful peignoir and then she had a and close up your robe. It's like, what? And she kind of ties the top of her like skin tight cleavage robe. And he's got the giant like 1930s covering everything robe. And yes. the reason that's extra funny was I watched, um, I was watching a Marx Brothers movie the other day. Oh. Uh, it was on Sunday. I was watching this film on Sunday and the Marx Brothers film. And they had a woman in that film who's wearing quote unquote nightwear that oh. was exactly the same as this. I was like, I oh my it. God, it's young Frankenstein. It's the oh, same thing. It's so <laughs> funny. 1930s glamorous pajamas and glamorous robes that are just like gowns that you are hanging out of. Right. The monologues too. Mm. He gives all these dramatic monologues, Gene Wilder does, that mm -hmm. don't even, no one's really even listening because they're just <laughs> so long. But it's like the joke of like, that's what movies kind of were like, of like, what have I done? The intense, right. overdramatic articulation oh. of what's happening. But I love that they say out loud the subtext too. So it's like yeah. we have all these tropes, but mm -hmm. then they'll say what everyone's thinking. So when he's talking about the monster and he's like, he's going to have features that are big in every aspect. And she's like, what about his Schwanstücker? <laughs> or he's going to have an enormous Schwanstücker or whatever she says about it. That's what everyone at home was thinking. And she said it out loud. Right. So it's got those moments, too, where it's like it's so faithful to the older films, but gives us awareness and says aloud what we're all thinking. Oh, the violin is is also a part of those films. So the fact that they incorporate it here and use it is great. Oh, and, and then Cloris Leachman smoking the cigar. Also, that scene is fantastic. That's one of my favorite moments that mm -hmm. he was my boyfriend moment. 
is wonderful. When we're figuring out who led Gene Wilder to this research, it ends up being Cloris Leachman because <laughs> Frankenstein was her boyfriend. So, so they're good. saying, it was you who smoked the cigar, yes! Which is such a big deal that they made that number a musical number in the musical when That's they made right. it a musical. And Andrea Martin sings it, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. Andrea Martin and she's, yeah. she's great. I never saw the musical, but I know the soundtrack. So it's really mm -hmm. interesting to me what they chose, mm -hmm. like, you know, what they ended up choosing. So Roll in the Hay is like yeah. how we meet Inga. And like, mm -hmm. it's how we meet Inga in this film too. She asks him if he wants to roll in the hay with her. And she literally means the hay, like I'm in hay. Right. So yeah, and Sutton Foster plays her. It was interesting when uh, Young Frankenstein became a musical and I saw it and it was so weird to see someone trying to be my dad. I didn't realize at the time that that would hit me so hard. It was so strange. That had not occurred to me either until you just said it. Yeah, that must have been an experience. And same in the producers. Again, mm -hmm. <laughs> hadn't thought this through. And I don't remember who played that role in the producers either on Broadway. I can't remember right now. I can't remember either, but he was wonderful. And I just kept seeing my dad. It was just so strange. Was your dad able to see the musical version of the producers? He didn't see either production. Um, and I can't remember what year the producers came out. The producers, I actually remember this because it won all the 2001 Tonys because I mm -hmm. was a very big Broadway nerd at this point. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, it was one of the first shows back after 9-11. And oh. um, it was like such a big deal and so sold out because people wanted to laugh again. They wanted to go to the theater and feel better. Yeah, by that time, I was already living in Portland and I probably would have taken my dad had I been down, you know, been in L.A. Oh, uh, two other tropes I just wanted to add for mm -hmm. like that were in the movie that I, I noted were, I mean, we've got our villagers with pitchforks and fire. Right. And, and obviously, like we've got this inspector uh, who's usually has some sort of accent. Um, so I wanted to name those. I actually I've seen so many different kinds of Frankensteins. I read the book in my book club last year. Mm. Um, I saw the National Theater one, uh, not live, uh, but with Benedict Cumberbatch when he oh. was the creature. Yeah. And um, I mean, I've seen all the movies, but even seeing all that, I was trying to piece together like what makes this different. And to me, this movie is kind of the idea of like, what would happen if you righted the wrongs of Frankenstein, right? Because the whole idea, the whole book is about, you know, this guy creates this monster and immediately abandons him because he's ugly. He doesn't love him. And if the monster had received love, mm -hmm. what what would have happened instead? And so this shows that there's so much parenting in this film. I kept noticing it over and over. It's all about parental and familial relations, even between him and his grandfather. I love that Gene Wilder calls out for mommy several times. Yes. And then they have this modeling relationship of him with the creature where he's soothing the creature. Yes. I love you, you know, like my own. So I don't know. I love that idea of like, well, this is what would have happened if mm -hmm. Frankenstein had received love. Nobody would have died. Nobody would have been hurt. He'd like, be laying in bed with the newspaper. His wife would kick off her shoes. They'd have great sex. It would have been fabulous. I just love that. I also want to say in the book, so we read it literally last year for Halloween in my book club. Oh, and um, the thing that struck me the most, it was almost like Mary Shelley was writing a book about like, isn't this guy the worst? Because <laughs> it's not the monster. You're, you're in the monster's head and you see that he's not bad. You're right. just like, Frankenstein takes no responsibility for his actions throughout the entire book. Mm -hmm. He literally brings the creature to life and is like, ew, gross, bye, and then doesn't think about it again. 
he doesn't think about where the creature goes or what the creature does. And so when the creature starts stalking him and like hurting things, he's like, mm-hmm. what is this? What's going on? He like never, I just want to call that out. Mary Shelley, thank you for trolling like the douchebag dudes. Oh, Mary Shelley, feminist extraordinaire. So I wrote down all my favorite, my top scenes. The blind man scene for me is just incredible. The one with Gene Hackman. Oh. And oh, and that's in the book, that's like an incredibly tragic scene because he befriends a blind man the creature does Mm. after like learning how to speak english through a peephole he like spies Mm -hmm. on this family for a Mm -hmm. year and falls in love with them and then you know goes in to meet the man and befriends him and they have a relationship and then the family comes home one day and sees the monster and freaks out in this version the blind man is constantly harming the creature by accident just by trying to be kind and it's incredibly amusing so dang funny a lot of hot items, hot things spilling. Well, the fire. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. He puts, instead of smoking a cigar, he accidentally puts the creature's thumb in the fire. He spills hot soup on him. He breaks his wine glass with a very hearty clink, all in trying to be just such a good host. Oh. And that, and I think that line at the end, I could be wrong, but I think it might have been an ad lib. Where are you going? I was going to make espresso. I think, I think I read that somewhere. Oh, I want that to be an ad lib. That was like a perfect button to that scene. For me, the dart scene is great too, because that scene has some excellent buttons too. And it's so much fun when they go outside and you see the car pull away and all the darts in the tire. I mean, it's just really fun. And the cat. Because it's twofold. Because at first you see the dart in the man's hat and you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's funny. And -hmm. then they drive away and you see the dart in the flat tire and you're like, oh, we got a double button. We got two buttons at the end of that scene. Mel Brooks can make as many buttons as he wants. I laughed each time. I was uh, totally amused by it. So what's happening in this scene, viewers at home, if you haven't seen Young Frankenstein, which you might not have. You better see it now. Go watch it. It's just terrific. You're going to love it. Gene Wilder's trying to convince the inspector that he is nothing like his grandfather and he would never make a creature again after he just tried to make a creature and it's (laughs) alive. So they're playing darts to just be casual and have a conversation. And at first, Gene Wilder's very good and he gets a lot of bullseyes. And the inspector, when Gene Wilder's back is turned, puts them all into the bullseye hole and pretends that he is also great at darts. It's very, very funny. And then, well, you watch Gene Wilder unravel. He he throws the darts in all the directions because he's so nervous and it's hilarious. You know, Mel Brooks working on your show of shows, one of my dad's favorite sketches that show of shows did was the This Is Your Life sketch, which had Howie Morris in it and Sid Caesar and, oh, golly, the great Imogene Coca, of course. My dad would comment on that sketch because I think Sid Caesar's got the popcorn and he throws it up into the air and it makes this incredible arc and my dad said you know that is just poetry to watch a comedian who had this ability to make something so beautiful and it reminded me of the dart scene with gene wilder because gene wilder when he's kind of falling apart as you describe so well he goes to throw the dart and it and it goes backwards and it flies through the air it's a great moment gene wilder nails it. I mean, you know, my dad, he totally nailed it. No question. And just them together in that scene, poetry. It's so natural. And I was going to ask about the accent too. Did -hmm. you ever hear about how your dad came up with that accent? Because it's such part of your dad's character in this is that no one can understand him Mm because he's so intense with his incredible accent that he has to stop what he's doing in the impassioned speech and say it like normally. And then he can continue with the passion speech. You know, my dad was a master dialectician. And he was so 
specific and he just dug into it. And I think he and Mel undoubtedly, I'm, this isn't something I know for a fact, but, you know, probably volleyed around about where was that understandability and how they could make a, a scene that would work. And I just thought my dad mastered that. Just again, poetry, that fine line between ridiculousness and grounded in reality. And he just nailed it. I would say you, that's like the definition of Mel Brooks ridiculousness but grounded in reality it just feels as though you're watching a real person who's crazy inspector camp it's funny because i'm remembering right now a quote i had read about mel brooks someone had asked him why are you not really in this film because i think he has like a voiceover dub and like a small cameo at one point and um he was saying it's because gene wilder thought it would take away from the picture he's like because you when Gene Wilder basically said, well, Mel, when you're in a picture, you break the fourth wall all the time and people can't help but focus on you, the you of yeah. it all. Mm -hmm. And so by not being in it, it becomes kind of more about the story. Like, cause I guess it would have been maybe a little distracting. I love Mel Brooks so much. Mm -hmm. And so I can see it would take you out of this time and place potentially. I get what, what Gene Wilder was saying. I agree. And I think, you know, kind of like a Hitchcock move where it's so much fun to find him you know, oh, there he is. He's over there. It's over there. Um, where's Waldo for a more recent reference? Yeah, for people at home who watch this, they might not know. Maybe they do. Alfred Hitchcock did cameos in most of his films. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to spot him sometimes. So Yeah, yeah except after we know now what he was doing on set, it's not as much fun to spot him at all. He's one of the, the people that's really hard for me because I really do love his films, but he's such a disgusting creeper of a human. And it's really hard to reconcile. Like, that. that's a really hard one. We're actually talking about him later in the season because a subscriber requested it. Oh, <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. This oh, I was going to tell you Gino's last name. I looked it up. You know, it's funny in my in my memory of, you know, being a kid on set. I just thought, you know, he was in charge of everything. That's pretty much what I thought. I thought he was in charge of everything because he was just such an amazing. I just adored him. He was the set principal. He was. Oh, Lord. Now I did. I found it. And then I, of course, now wait for it. He was the onset mixer, but it's so interesting because he, I know he was nominated for an Academy Award because I remember. Did you get to meet Madeline Kahn and Terry Garr? I know I met them on set, but it wasn't, again, it was just so funny. They, the crew was so much more fun for me because they were, you know, my dad, when he's on set, I could hang out with him, but I really couldn't bother him too much. I mean, he was awesome. He took me to work, which was fantastic. But, uh, you know, when you're the kid of an actor who's really got a focus, and so did everyone else on set who was acting, and, and certainly crew does too. I'm not saying that they don't, but they are a little less, you know, in that performance mode. So I, maybe that's why Gene, uh, Gino was so darn wonderful to me. That makes perfect sense. Because that's what I would do on a set. Like, you know, I haven't had so many opportunities to be on set. But when I have, you're just so focused. And I used to love sitting in the makeup um, trailer because everyone would come through. And, you know, Peter Boyle was in that makeup chair for maybe six, seven hours. Oh, we haven't even talked about Peter Boyle as the creature. I have, yeah. you know, people at home. I'm just going to read the cast. While she's looking for Gino, I'm going to read you the cast. His name was Gene Cantamessa, and he was the production mixer. So he's the guy on set you know, speed. He's got the boom mic guy and all that. And I just, I just dug the filmmaking business. I love to be near it. It was so much fun. And Gino was so good to me. I'll never, never forget him. 
I'm picturing you at like the canteen, like eating lunch as a child. You've got Gino, you've got Cloris Leachman, you've got all these people coming through. And I want to read this like novelization. I want like the Young Susanna series. But the cast, we've mentioned them, but I'm just going to read the people that we're talking about. So like Gene Wilder, he plays Victor Frankenstein. We've listed his films. Madeline Kahn plays his fiance. I feel like her name is Elizabeth. I think you're right. In the book, it's Elizabeth. So I'm like, yeah. I'm guessing it's Elizabeth in this. Oh, and it's funny that here, I was thinking about this, in the book, Elizabeth is perfect. The character of Elizabeth is a perfect human and she's murdered by the creature. And mm -hmm. so in this, it's like they made that kind of the opposite of like, Elizabeth is not perfect. She's really right. fun and she's kind of shallow. It's not the same. Right, it's funny because like aesthetically they go for the perfection. Yes, physically she's gorgeous, obviously. Physically she's gorgeous. Oh my gosh, did you notice in that first scene when they're saying goodbye that she has that diamond encrusted jewel in her hair? I mean, golly, the costumes and the, it was just perfection. She had like the monkey stole. And then later, the white, yes. The foxes. Yeah, the foxes. So extra. And then Marty Feldman bites it. You're going to love those outtakes. You're going to go crazy. I can't wait to watch them. Marty Feldman plays um, Igor slash Igor. Mm -hmm. Peter Boyle is the monster. And people at home, you know him from Everybody Loves Raymond. That's probably very much how you know him. I also know him from While You Were Sleeping. And he's oh. a taxi driver. He's done so much. He's kind yes. of similar to your dad in the way that he works, where he was just in so many things and was a working actor for years. Mm -hmm. And then Cloris Leachman, we've mentioned in this, she's uh, Frau Blucher. And she's also in, she's in so many things. I mean, oh. Cloris Leachman's a classic. She's in The Last Picture Show. She's in oh. The Muppet Movie. Right. Um, she's also in Butch Cassidy. She's Mary in Mary Tyler Anxiety. Moore. Mary Tyler Moore. When yeah. I was a kid, I genuinely legitimately knew her from the remake of the Beverly Hillbillies. <clears throat> they oh. made a Beverly Hillbillies movie. I didn't know that. That's how I knew her as a child. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she was great in it. And then Terry Garr, you might know from Tootsie, After Hours, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and she played Phoebe's mom on Friends. And then we've mentioned Kenneth Mars. He plays the inspector and he's Susanna's dad. He's my dad. And we've been talking about him so lovingly. It's beautiful. <laughs> Do you have a favorite film of your dad's in general? Mm. Oh, wow. That's tough. Favorite film of my dad's. I do love What's Up, Doc. Your dad was in like a comedy holy trinity. You know, like he's in The Producers. He's in mm -hmm. Young Frankenstein. He's mm -hmm. in What's Up, Doc. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's all epic. You know, it's interesting. My dad made a movie when I was a kid called Desperate Characters, and it was dad and Shirley MacLaine. And we had moved back to California. My dad had gotten a series called He and She. We moved to California so he could shoot that. And then he got Desperate Characters and we moved back to New York and my parents were split up then, but I remember it was based on a book by Paula Fox called Desperate Characters and it was a beautiful, beautiful movie. And I watched it recently and it's just a surprising part of who my dad was. And I think probably many actors and actresses who fall into a certain type of work. And for my dad, I think the German accent became kind of a pivotal part. You know, he was on Malcolm in the Middle for a long time with the German accent too. And and he had such a, an incredible breadth of characters he could play. And uh, so Desperate Characters was, you know, a Manhattanite. And it was a couple who were living a life that was fraught and very dramatic and intense. So, you know, I just, I think when you grow up with an actor, or for me, because I just loved what my dad did, I was just always fascinated with how involved he would get with creating characters. So 
when I saw desperate characters, I thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, and it was also kind of exposing, certainly as an adult to watch it, parts of him that I had not often seen on screen. Desperate characters, I'm gonna check it out. And it's funny too, I'm just thinking about women. This is way off topic from what you just asked me, but I wanted to bring up, I remember when my dad was on Police Woman with uh, Angie Dickinson and remembering watching women, and my dad was in the original pilot for Wonder Woman with Linda Carter. Whoa. Being on set with him and seeing women of those time periods and how they were dressed and how they couldn't sit down, how Angie Dickinson didn't have a chair during Police Woman. She had a leaner because her white pantsuit was so tight. I remember going on set and I'd see this, it was very old school, um, this white, like a plank, not a plank, a wide piece of wood that was all covered in white leather with brass tacks all around, like very beautiful, um, upholstered, right? With a little place for her feet and she would stick her feet on the bottom and she would kind of lay down to rest when she was off camera. And then watching Linda Carter in her Wonder Woman suit and, you know, she was Miss Universe. She was obviously a beautiful, beautiful woman. And as a kid at that time, seeing women, it's re it really impacted me, I think, in what women had to do in the business at that time. That's something I hadn't thought about in terms of you became an actor. So it's like you you saw these things, mm -hmm. but it didn't deter you or stop you from becoming an actor. And this isn't one of my questions. I'm just like really curious about this. So then what was that like having, having seen the business? Maybe mm -hmm. even like, I don't know, seeing the underbelly of it and then deciding to do that yourself. Like what did that feel like? Well, it's really interesting because I ended up being, I was a kid actor around age 10, I started doing commercials and stuff like that. And then I did, I was in the Jodie Foster Freaky Friday. Wait, and, really? Yes. How did I not know this? About, I, whatever, it's not, I not know any of this. And so I, I, I was very funny kid. I, I was used to being around people in show business. I, I really, I loved it. And so I started acting, doing commercials, doing some TV shows, doing, you know, Freaky Friday. And, and I think somehow I just lost my confidence. I can't remember if it was after Freaky Friday or what. Oh, and I was in an after school special with Christy McNichol. It was a really hard business for kids, in my opinion, at least. And I think my dad was kind of, he wanted me to do what I wanted. He was very supportive. And by the same token, he understood the the commitment that it took to, to be in the business. And he would say to me, you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. And, you know, at that point in my life, I think it's just interesting. Um, I wish in a way my mom was kind of not in the picture at that time that I could have had someone to say, this is kind of hard, but I do love it, you know? And, and so I quit. And so when I returned, I was in theater. And that was, is such a different experience on so many levels. It's much more familial or was, you know, of course you get, it runs the gamut, all the experiences, but. Well, and you're more in control, I feel, on stage. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's you, you are the person making the scene. It's you making it and, and film. It's not that it's you fitting into that scene. Yeah. You know, it's like a different, 
different skill yeah <laughs> and vibe and feeling gosh and even the stuff i've done in episodic television you know as an adult i just constantly think about my dad and how incredible it was that he would show up as a guest star you know learn these big scripts and he always he would always say bring a book whenever you're at work bring a book because you know you're in your trailer for five six seven hours then you work for 20 minutes then you're out again and um the pressure he just rocked it the pressure and then feeling the need to like fit in with the regulars or like be as comfortable as they are you know it's a real art to be that guest star human i think i think so too for like the limited sets that i have been on that mm -hmm. has been the biggest challenge of how much time do i spend like the time I need to prepare for this, the time I need to like get comfortable with these people, chat with them. Like it's finding this balance of like how much energy can I expend in each of these situations? Yeah. And the pressure, the pressure of getting it just right when the cameras are on you of like, oh God, I only have, I don't know, however much time to right. do maybe like two takes or maybe three takes. I don't even know. The sun's going down. It has to be perfect. It's crazy. It's intense. I was going to ask if you have a favorite Mel Brooks film. I mean, I think I would have to say producers are young Frankenstein because they're just so freaking fabulous and my dad's in them. The very first Mel Brooks film I ever saw was Robin Hood Men in Tights. It came out mm. when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing it and thinking it was the funniest thing I had ever seen. I had never seen humor like that before. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else like it. There's nothing yeah. like a Mel Brooks film. So that's mm -hmm. probably for me going to be my all time favorite because it's such a part of my childhood. But I do think Young Frankenstein is such a perfect film. Like, it's so well done, so well crafted. Those are probably my top two. Let's get into this modern lens. Like, yep. what was not really holding up, which is funny because it's like the dual lens of like, they're mocking something from the 30s. So it like both does not hold up today and potentially in the 70s, but they were showing it because it didn't hold up. Yes. So just first of all, people at home, they're like not people of color in this film, really. The only people right. of color you see are in the medical student scene, but they don't really get to speak or anything. Mm -mm. And I mean, that's also because this is a film based on a film from the 1930s when everyone would have been white. So mm -hmm. like there's that whole aspect of it, too. Mm -hmm. um, so like there is that stuff. And then in general, what, what holds up is that the women are all incredibly funny. Yes. What doesn't really hold up is some of the consent stuff we had kind of touched on earlier. That mm -hmm. feels icky. Kind of rapey culture. Feels rape culture-y. Mm -hmm. Even the Marty Feldman scene, which is funny when mm -hmm. he's hitting on Madeline Kahn, is also he's like groping her and harassing her. So it's like yes. both sides yes. of the coin there. Yeah. And so much boobs. Although I did love the line about the knockers which is the opposite because there's when we first uh see the big castle and we pull up to it igor starts knocking on this these giant circular door knockers and uh frankenstein goes nice knockers and inga goes ah thank you or whatever she says and so i like that he wasn't really talking about her breasts that she's the one that acknowledges it it's funny too i was thinking to myself like i'm a small-breasted person and growing up in that era and seeing how much attention is paid to breasts. I think that really was a challenging thing for many women in my era. I don't know if this makes you feel any better, but I have large knockers, as Inga would say. Mm -hmm. um, and that was always the most self-conscious thing because first of all, people would stare at them when you were too young for them to be staring at them and you felt mm. uncomfortable. You're like, I'm oh. 14, cut it out. But <laughs> 
like you'd get kicked out of school for wearing a shirt that the person next to you was wearing the same shirt just because you had big boobs. And it was always, I felt like I was trying to hide them or disguise them or Mm. cover them because Mm. of the unwanted attention that came with them sometimes. So the flip side of the coin was that. Oh, so interesting. It made me think of the story I told you about Angie Dickinson. These women and, and Linda Carter, for heaven's sake, walking around in these costumes You know, and I remember being on set and they would always have someone who would give them a robe or equip them so they were could be covered up if they wanted to be. But, you know, even Terry Garr. It was all about her sex appeal and her breasts and the whole role, the whole joke of her is that she's sexy and willing to comply with sexual acts. So, yeah, that is a little I totally feel that. And also, I'm thinking of like when you're mentioning Angie Dickinson and Linda Carter and they're like tough, strong women, but they still don't have control over what their characters are wearing. They're still in these teeny tiny outfits. Even I was thinking about Sandy from Greece, Olivia Newton-John, how they had to sew her into those tight, sexy Greece pants and she couldn't go to the bathroom. You know, it's so funny when I was watching the movie uh, today, I thought to myself, remember after Terry Garr and Gene Wilder have their affair on the Frankenstein bed. And then Madeline Kahn shows up. And then he's like, well, I thought we were going to sleep in the same. I'm like, what? I never noticed that, that he had sex with Inga. He works for him. He's her boss. And his girlfriend. And then his fiance comes, or as he says, my financier, which was very funny. And then he's like, oh, well, we're going to be together. So I I was surprised. I never noticed that before. Because it is pretty gross. And then he like puts his head in her in her bosom. <laughs> And you're like, oh, whoa, I hope she was cool with that. She probably was because you're Gene Wilder, but still. (laughs) Right. Um, So, yeah, stuff like that was like, and then obviously Madeline Kahn and Frankenstein, that did not look consensual when he has sex with her. Mm -mm. They try to make it okay by her seeing his Schwan Stupper. Schwan Stucker. Schwan Stucker. In the other movie, she's Von Stupper. It's very confusing to me. Stupping and Von Stuckers and just. Schwanstucker and Stupping. Schwanstucker, Stupping, all of it. So that's why I get confused, I think. But yeah, she says woof after that. So she clearly likes how it looks and stuff. So they add a tiny bit of, you know, and when she sings Oh Sweet Mystery of Life, we're like, okay, she's enjoying it. But again, the beginning's a little iffy. Not consensual. So yeah, that doesn't really hold up. I'd love to look, as you put so well, uh, no people of color in the film. And even in the student scene, I wonder if there are any women. I didn't notice. There were. I checked. Oh, <laughs> I was, good. I was looking for it because I was just you like, okay, good. let's look at these medical students. Who's here? Who's studying medicine? And I was like, okay, there's some women. Okay. There's a few people of color in this classroom. Like, yeah. it's okay. That was the most diverse scene <laughs> in the whole film in terms of like women and people of color. Interesting because I never looked at the villagers in that way too. It's like who the villagers, they predominantly <gasps> men. I didn't look at them, but they do look predominantly like men. I didn't track it, but it felt like a lot of white men. Feels like it probably is. So yeah, there's all of that. There's so many great bits, but I forgot about the hand where they've got the dead body gag. Oh, and I love that. There's the dead hand hanging out of the coffin and the shaking of the It's so simple. It's like Marx Brothers kind of, you know, humor, but it, it's perfect. It just yes. fits right in. And it's so darn funny because, you know, Gene Wilder does this stomp stomp when he wants Marty Feldman to like raise the hand and all that. And it so also harkens back to my dad with the hand. I mean, there are so many funny, shadowy gags. I wrote down, not the third switch. All these quotes. Oh, and my other favorite, when Terry, when uh, Terry Gar says, 
you haven't touched your food. And then he's like, he puts his hands, blomp, 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 blomp. Now I've touched it. It's just so great. So funny. And that's in the outtakes. You will laugh your boot off. Well, and that's such a trope of the 30s movies, too. They, yes. You haven't touched your dinner. You haven't touched your food. And so the way they handle that in this is perfect. And then um, one of my other just stupid quotes. I love a good stupid quote. But mm -hmm. when um, the creature awakens the first time in that dinner scene and Gene Wilder goes, well, you just made a yummy sound. Just the phrase of, well, you just made a yummy sound kills me. Didn't I just hear you make a yummy sound? I mean, that that's what, you know, and it's so funny. Do you remember, you don't remember, you're too young, but there was this marvelous album called Free to Be You and Me with Marlo Thomas. Oh, we, I actually, I went to a Montessori school and they totally played that for us. So yes, because yeah, it's so good. All about it. So anybody who's listening to this podcast, and if you have a child in your life that you love, get Free to Be You and Me by Marlo Thomas, because Mel Brooks and Marlo Thomas do a hilarious sketch where they're babies. Mm -hmm. And this is what's so beautiful about Mel Brooks, or one of the things, because I think he's a really brilliant human and a wonderful person, that he maintains this sense of innocence. And I think that's in all of his work, this sense of wide-eyed wonder. And that sketch in Free to Be You and Me is the same. It's these two babies who don't know what sex they are, and they're having this ongoing conversation. It's like, are you a girl or a boy? I don't know. What do you think? Am I a girl or a boy? I don't know. And it's so darn cute. And similarly with the, you know, you haven't touched your food and the touching the food, it just, it's so fun because it's so innocent and delightful. And it's got things for each level too. So I think the reason that when I watched, you know, Robin Hood Men in Tights as a kid and thought it was hilarious is mm -hmm. because there is something, there is that sense of wonder and innocence that a kid would find funny, but then mm -hmm. there's those extra layers that adults find funny too. There's this whole gambit of humor yeah. and all of it works and it yeah. reaches all ages. That's the thing about Young Frankenstein that I think is so great is for certainly for Halloween, you can watch it with your kids. It's there's nothing untoward. It's like a perfect Halloween classic, I would say. I would agree. I mean, maybe the Schwanstücke might be hard to explain, but you know. The other parts I wrote down were when he becomes kind to Frankenstein and realizes that's the way to go. And mm. when he goes, hello, handsome. You're a good looking fellow. Do you know that? Just it's so good. This is a mother's angel. Just oh. all of the language he uses there is spot on and perfect. And so I yeah. wrote it down because I it loved really it. Is. And I so think good. the last part that ties into that of him being a great parent and like in the end wanting to help his little baby creation is when Frankenstein's climbing up the side of the wall to get back. Oh, yes. And and they're trying to help him up. And Gene Wilder goes, don't touch him. He wants to do it by himself. It's just so sweet. That's it's got so much heart. That's the other part of it. Like Mel Brooks has so much heart and you feel it. Yeah, he really does. It's remarkable. Now we are in the double feature portion. Woohoo, double feature portion. So if you liked this movie, some other movies to check out would obviously be The Producers. Yes, so Mel Brooks films in general. All right. You should watch The Producers. Basically any of Mel Brooks films, I feel like you're going to be you're going to be pretty happy. I'm pretty sure, yeah. I mean, all of them, even the ones that kind of flopped in theaters. Like, I know Spaceballs didn't do well in theaters, but what a yeah. classic. What's so cool, I think, about these filmmakers who have had the opportunity to have a whole body of work throughout their life is being able to watch their arc of creativity. It's just cool. Now that I'm thinking about it, I haven't seen Dracula Dead and Loving It, and I bet you... I haven't either. That would work really well with this, too. Yeah, why not? I would say check out Frankenstein 
And Bride of Frankenstein. I've never seen Son of Frankenstein, so I don't know. So there was the old TV show, which I don't think you might be able to watch, but I'm not sure, Dark Shadows. I don't think it impacted Young Frankenstein. But just if you're looking for a genre that's kind of kookyville. It's got the vibes. I think it was in the 70s. I think that you're right. I've never seen it. They made the remake with Johnny Depp, like a film version that I did yes. not see. I didn't but either. people love that show. Yes. I remember kids on my block playing Dark Shadows. There was biting. I also put down Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in my notes. Oh, that's a fun idea. That would be a good double feature because it's a comedy that deals mm -hmm. with, you know, Frankenstein. And mm -hmm. then I wrote um, Blazing Saddles came out the same year as this. So that would actually be a really fun thing to do a double feature of like, you mm -hmm. watch Blazing Saddles, you watch this. Because yeah. they're both like 1974, Mel Brooks realizing that he needs to be a genre comedy director. <laughs> And then we had mentioned, obviously, the producers. If you're going to go for a Kenneth Mars double feature, I would say the producers. That's my suggestion. What's up, Doc? Just watch The Little Mermaid and revel in his voice. Just revel. My last double feature, I would actually say, would be the original To Be or Not To Be. Because I know Mel Brooks made a remake of To Be or Not yes, To Be. Yes, that's right. But I think the, like, 19... It's, it is 1930s. It had to be. Yeah, 1930s, or maybe it was early 40s. Mm -hmm. Whenever To Be or Not To Be was, mm -hmm. that movie is fantastic. Mm. It's comedians taking on a serious topic and making it funny. Mm. There's German accents and such. I would say that would be a really fun pairing with Young Frankenstein. Maybe the double feature would have to be reading the original with a little book club and then watching Young Frankenstein. Kind of cross genres. Go book, movie. I think that's a great idea. You could do that also. I do too. Go, Mary Shelley, go. Thank you so much for being on the show, Susanna. Oh, Thank I enjoyed it here. so much. I had so much fun and regaling stories about my dad is just very joyful for me and super happy times. Just, I don't know, watching him as a little person and thinking, wow, you're amazing. It's a super happy thing to recall. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. It was beautiful. And everybody at home will see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Susanna Mars. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.